in the Jack Mangan's Deadpan Podcast. The chance to begin again in a golden land of opportunity and podcasting. Welcome to Deadpan number 271. We have targeted 288 as the end, as the final Deadpan episode, so we are getting near the end. It's too bad the Deadpan won't live, but then, who really does? That's right, we're in episode 4? Yes, 4 out of probably 5 Blade Rutger Palooza episodes, or Blade Runner Palooza episodes. We never really crowned Blade Rutger as the the official title. You know, it could still end up as Do Hemorrhoids Dream of Electric Cheeks? Or uh, um, Do R2 Droids Dream of Electric Beeps? Or I don't know. But for now, we'll call it Blade Rutger. For the iconic performance of Rutger Hauer as Roy Batty. Anyway, we've learned a lot. The most shocking thing I think uh, that I've learned about Blade Runner through doing this is that Blade Runner is actually two words. It's not one word. It's Blade Runner. We've had some great insights, and we'll get some more in uh, this episode, which is a collection of short thoughts and shorter material about Blade Runner. And then next week is looking to be the final episode, and that will be a good long conversation recorded between two deadpanites. Now, of course, if you've sent me some short material about Blade Runner and I've overlooked it, as I sometimes do, then please just send me a quick note to let me know and we'll slip it in with the, uh, the long conversation that is the final Palooza episode next week. I think that's all I've got to say. Let's get right into the episode and let's hear what the others had to say. Monsieur Azanal Cavesson and Gambit. You Nexus, huh? I'm behind your eyes. Sure. If only you could see what I've seen with your eyes. Hey, Deadpan. This is Tony from Backseat Producers at all. Um, just wanted to comment on the Blade Runner Palooza Do Androids Dream of Electric Paloozas, uh, whatever we're going to call this, this bad boy. Uh, listen to the first Palooza episode, and there was a lot of discussion about the pacing of Blade Runner, and that it was it was really slow. That's actually how a lot of movies in the early '80s and earlier were made. The pacing of a, of a generally the pacing of movies before the mid '80s is considerably slower than the pacing of movies made in the last half of the 80s through the 90s to today. Uh, look at Just look at movies like Superman the Movie, uh, the first Star Trek movie, Star Wars, uh, the, A New Hope. The, these movies, the, the pacing of them is not snappy. They don't start quickly. Um, they take some time to amp up and get going. And then they generally don't have the, the real quick, on-your-feet, uh, keeping things moving that, that the modern movies do. 
um, a, a good movie to point to uh, to show where this is in effect uh, in in the mid '80s is is a movie like Back to the Future, where um, the the pacing of that is pretty quick and doesn't let up. Now. You can speculate on why this is. My personal speculation is because this is when we saw the rise of the the ability to rewatch movies, to see them over and over again. Um, movies and television shows are made completely differently today than they were back then. Uh, a movie, a TV show like the original Battlestar Galactica, for example, could very easily get away with stock cuts of ships flying out of the Galactica's. Um, launch bays and stock cuts of ships exploding we saw these a week apart um, sometimes more and we didn't have the ability to go back and re-watch them to record them and, and re-watch the episodes over and over again there wasn't a concept of being able to to buy a season of a television show and rewatch it so there was no reason to to, to make anything unique or special because we could just rewatch those same flight scenes over and over again. And unless you had a particularly good memory, you might not even be aware that you were seeing the same thing over and over again. Now, the same, I think, it can be true of of the the films of the time. The, the pacing was a little bit slower. They, they wanted you to digest the film. There wasn't the opportunity to, to come back six months later and purchase the movie and, and watch it from home. Um, if you were lucky, one of the network stations would pick it up and play it at, at some point, or one of your, your local independent stations on a Saturday afternoon would play it in their, in their three movie block. At least that's the way it was here. Otherwise, no, the, the, the pacing of the movie, I, I think really is an effect of, of they wanted you to, to completely, experience the movie the it was also the mindset they used in regards to voiceovers i personally find the voiceover most voiceovers they tend to be insulting to the audience they they tend to try to over explain things to you and i uh, yeah i'm sorry I, I i know a lot of folks have actually said that they they enjoyed the voiceover of uh, harrison ford in the theatrical cut of blade runner i can't agree I, I feel it just talks down to the audience and it doesn't let the audience really experience the world fully. Yeah, you get into the story quicker, but the pacing of this movie is such that you should experience it and not just be told everything up front. Uh, if you were told everything up front, then the pacing should have been quicker because we got everything we needed. Uh, or, or you should get everything you need from a voiceover. That's my take on it. Go ahead and take a take a close look at movies before... Pretty much movies before 1983 and then after 1986. Movie styles and the pacing and, and changes in editing were really went into effect in, the, in that time period. And there is a marked difference between movies before then and after then. Thanks for listening. Thanks for uh, another awesome Palooza and everybody's contributions. And I'll catch you guys later. See ya. I've done questionable things. Also extraordinary things. Revel in your time. Nothing the god of biomechanics wouldn't let you in heaven for. Hey, Deadpan. This is Retro. And I was thinking about discussing a couple other points uh, that I didn't bring up uh, during the Blade Runner discussion. But no, 
we will be examining two culturally significant movies created in the late 70s, early 80s time period and examine how they are alike and how each movie could be improved by borrowing elements from the other. This is in no way a ripoff of a previous bit done on Deadpan. <coughs> the two movies we are going to consider are the 80s action thriller Blade Runner and the late 70s Clint Eastwood vehicle Every Which Way But Loose. ways they are alike. In every which way, a downtrodden anti-hero kicks the asses of villains in the wasteland of 1970s era Western America. In Blade Runner, a downtrodden anti-hero gets his ass kicked by villains in the 21st century wasteland of Western America. In Blade Runner, Harrison Ford pursues a replicant named Roy Batty. Every which way but loose, Clint Eastwood is pursued by a motorcycle gang, the Black Widows. In Blade Runner, Harrison Ford comes to realize that replicants have real feelings just like humans do. In Every Which Way But Loose, Clint Eastwood comes to realize that women have feelings just like humans do. Now we look at ways Blade Runner and Every Which Way But Loose could be improved by adding elements from the other. Ways that Blade Runner could be improved. Number five, the addition of a chase scene involving a rusty pickup truck. Number four, instead of bizarre toy soldiers, Sebastian's artificial companions take on a more rural flavor. Must get lonely here, Chan. Hmm. Not really. I make friends. They're toys. My friends are toys. I make them. This is my brother Daryl. That's my other brother Daryl. <laughs> Number three, prior to a fight, the replicants turn their baseball caps backwards. Number two, Pris eating a bag of Oreos. And the number one way, all flying patrol cars get orangutan co-pilots. Right turn, Clyde. Now we shall examine how every which way but loose could be approved by adding elements from Blade Runner. Number five. Voight comp test proves Sandra Locke is a robot. Number four. Clint's cohort, Orville, leaves origami dicks at every bar they visit. Number three. Philo's mom sent off world. God damn it! What do you want with an old lady? Number two. Sean Hannity frozen in carbonite. Oh, that wrong list, sorry. Number two is actually, Rutger Hauer breaks the fingers of the script writers. This is for Retro. <laughs> now that's just mean. In the number one edition, in an added scene to the director's cut, Clint comes to an unsettling realization when he falls asleep at a piano and dreams of bananas. Left. Turn, Clyde. Alright, this is a stolen paragraph from the book Future Noir, The Making of Blade Runner by Paul M. Salmon. This is actually, this book belongs to Retro and he lent it to me.
see if he ever gets it back. <laughs> um, one of the... It's an interesting little um, paragraph. Batty's last-minute change of heart has confused some viewers. In the British science fiction film magazine Starburst in 1982, Ridley Scott opined that Batty's saving of Deckard's life was, quote, was an endorsement in a way that the character is almost more human than human, and that he can demonstrate a very human quality at a time when the roles are reversed and Deckard may have been delighted to blow his head off. But Roy Batty takes the humane route, but also in a way because Batty wants a kind of death watch, where he knows he is going, dying, so in a sense he is saving Deckard for something, to pass on the information that what the makers are doing is wrong. Either the answer is not to make them at all, or deal with them as human beings, close quote. You are listening to Jack Mangan's Deadpan. We are Deadpan. Deadpan is the way. Hey, Jack. Rapid Eye here calling in with the uh, last Palooza, my feedback on that. Um, all right, Blade Runner. I think when the movie came out, I was probably in high school or college, somewhere around there. I, I don't have a computer in front of me to check the dates. But uh, I remember watching it, and, and I thought, you know, I love Harrison Ford. I, I liked uh, sci-fi, but, you know, that, to be honest with you, most of that, that movie was just lost on me. I just didn't quite get it. You know, it had a lot of eye candy. It had some neat stuff. But, the flying cars and the whole thing with the picture where is it on pants and go to grid 47 and zoom in and all that stuff. That was, that was pretty cool. And, and the whole thing with the androids that may or may not know they were androids and then, you know, coming back to try and live forever, you know, that was kind of cool. But, you know, the way it ended really just, I hated, you know, the whole thing with Rutger Hauer on the roof and the rain and then the, and then running off with the android. I just, you know, I didn't get it. I, I, I just didn't care for it. So, uh, getting ready for the Palooza, and I've seen the movie several times since, and I still think, you know, it's, it's a good movie, it's just not a great movie, um, but uh, getting ready for the Palooza, I, I finally decided I was going to read the book, and I've never read the book, and I was pleasantly surprised, the book is so much better than the movie, it's not even close, I mean, the, all, this, all the additional layers that it gives, you know, his wife, and the mood boxes, and the whole electric sheep and the you know all that stuff going on, they just add such a new layer to the story that just makes it a thousand times better. I, I thought that was a whole lot, but, uh, a whole a much better story. Uh, and and I understand why they couldn't put all the stuff with the movie. A lot of a lot of that kind of inner discussion that Decker has that you know just wouldn't translate well. And, uh, I get that, but still, I, I think they could have done a better job with the movie. I, I think it just I just missed Mark, so I'm glad I got. I'm glad you did the blues, and I was able to go back and watch the or read the book. Uh, and take care, Jack. Gonna miss doing these with you. Rapid Eye out. Next subject: Kowalski, Leon, Engineer, Waste Disposal, File Section, New Employees, Six Days. Come in. Sit down. Uh, care if I talk? I'm kind of nervous when I take tests. Uh, just please don't move. Oh, sorry. I already had an IQ test this year. I don't think I've ever had one of these. Reaction time is a factor in this, so please pay attention. Now, answer as quickly as you can. Sure. 
1187 at Unterwasser. That's the hotel. What? Where I live. Nice place? Yeah. Sure, I guess. That part of the test? No. Just warming you up, that's all. Oh, it's not fancy or anything. You're in a desert, walking along in the sand, when all of a sudden... Is this the test now? Yes. You're in a desert, walking along in the sand, when all of a sudden you look down... What one? What? What desert? It doesn't make any difference what desert. It's completely hypothetical. But how come I'd be there? Maybe you're fed up. Maybe you want to be by yourself. Who knows? You look down and you see a tortoise, Leon. It's crawling towards you. Tortoise? What's that? Know what a turtle is? Of course. Same thing. I've never seen a turtle, but I understand what you mean. You reach down. You flip the tortoise over on his back, Leon. Do you make up these questions, Mr. Holden, or do they write them down for you? The tortoise lays on its back, its belly baking in the hot sun, beating its legs trying to turn itself over, but it can't. Not without your help, but you're not helping. What do you mean I'm not helping? I mean you're not helping. Why is that, Leon? They're just questions, Leon. In answer to your query, they're written down for me. It's a test designed to provoke an emotional response. Shall we continue? Describe in single words only the good things that come to your mind about your mother. My mother? Yeah. Let me tell you about my mother. This is non-Palooza related, really. This is greasy comments. We'll start actually with the first. We usually do that last. But the first of the week was Retro, who said, Firsties? Seriously? Amy Bowen says, Speaking of geeky things, just in case anyone isn't a fan of T's group page on Facebook and missed this, Gandalf to officiate a Captain Picard's wedding. Retro says, if anyone wants to contribute their voice to the Fate of the Galaxy Star Wars mod, here you go. HTTP colon slash slash www.hard-light.net slash forum slash index dot php question mark topic equals 84074.0. Used hair says, I was actually upgrading from Vista to Windows 7. They used to have live sync, later mesh which was an incredible tool and allowed me to actively sync massive amounts of data across every computer in my house. Now they have cut it so that they can charge for data storage and transfer on SkyDrive. Ed from Texas says, And in case it comes across wrong in text, my comment was genuine, not snark. And the comment he was referring to was, Ed from Texas says, Oh, that was a wonderful mashup. What wondrous times we live in. I don't know why anyone thought it was snarky. Vatamon says, 
Think about it. DJ Bunny says, Pong? Really? The Energizer Bunny says, Showed hubby. Now he wants some. And the last one I'm going to read of the week, J.R. Murdoch says, Holy sheep dip, Batman. This episode is early. Hello, Deadpan. This is Amy Bowen, a.k.a. the Deadpan Ambassador. I'm recording this on the night of Wednesday, February 13th, 2013. I just finished reading the book Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep a little over two hours ago. Here are my thoughts for the Palooza. I enjoyed this book very much. The story is great. There's tons of intrigue and lots of great reveals that kept me wanting more. I especially liked this book because it explores the question of whether or not artificial constructs and artificial intelligences are real and alive in the same sense that humans are, and what makes them alive. That happens to be one of my favorite ideas in sci-fi, both to read about and to write about. I have at least three different novels, Vescaris, Bridging the Spheres, and the tentatively titled The Dreamers of the Dreams, in which this concept, or at least a very similar one, is important to the plot. I guess it's about time I finally read this book. One of the most important moments near the end of the book, spoiler alert, is when Rick Deckard thinks, In every cinder of the universe, Mercer probably perceives inconspicuous life. Now I know, he thought, and once having seen through Mercer's eyes, I probably will never stop. We know he means he'll never be able to see androids as lifeless, artificial objects ever again. As for me, I felt that way about the androids the moment I learned that all Roy Beatty had really wanted was to, as his rap sheet puts it, promote in androids a group experience similar to that of Mercerism, which, it pointed out, remains unavailable to androids. Or, as Ermgard puts it later on, no, it's that empathy. Isn't it a way of proving that humans can do something androids can't? Because without the Mercer experience, we just have your word that you feel this empathy business, this shared group thing. That was when I realized that that's their motive. That's all the androids want, to know that empathy, that this shared group thing, really exists, to experience it for themselves which is exactly the same thing humans want in general, including the humans in this book. That right there was what made this book so powerful for me. While I was rereading sections of the book looking for material for this segment, I came across this quote from John Isidore. You have to be with other people, he thought, in order to live at all. I mean, before they came here I could stand it, being alone in the building. But now it's changed. You can't go back, he thought. You can't go from people to non-people. It was only on rereading that I realized the connection between the two point-of-view characters. Both John and Rick are permanently changed by their experiences with the Nexus 6 type androids. John clearly cares about these people as people, even though they are androids. Rick realizes that, quote, the electric things have their lives too, paltry as they are. End quote. They both experience empathy with, a human connection to, these androids. 
It took re-reading to realize that, and I'm glad I decided to get the Kindle version of this, because I definitely plan to reread it in the future. I suspect I will find myself referring to it often as I continue on with my own sci-fi novels. I noticed that there were several pieces of the story that the author chose to leave as unexplained mysteries. The first one was, if the purpose of the androids is to be manservants and manual laborers, why exactly would the Rosen Association want to continue improving them so that they're truly indistinguishable from humans, as Rachel explained? If they were truly indistinguishable from humans, wouldn't they demand better working conditions and more dignified treatment, just like humans do? Wouldn't that defeat the purpose of building cheap labor machines? Now that I think of it, maybe labor unions would never develop if the workers didn't feel empathy for each other, didn't feel that they were part of a shared group thing. That has been my personal experience in a community of online workers. We are part of a shared group thing, and we have tons of empathy for each other, which is why we all want the best outcomes for each other. Maybe that's why the association doesn't make the androids capable of feeling empathy. If the androids don't care what happens to other androids, then they won't organize themselves and revolt. Holy crow! This work just keeps getting richer the more I think about it. I love this stuff! I realize, though, that I really didn't answer my original question. My original thought in answer to that question was, well, if they were truly indistinguishable from humans, then maybe those few who did escape would be able to live out the rest of their lives, as short as they are, without being detected. Is that what their inventors want? Maybe they don't want them to have to be killed? Maybe they themselves are empathetic towards them? It was just a thought. Maybe I'm completely wrong. But that's what I thought of. The other thing that the author left a mystery was exactly why anyone would shoot a series of films and create mercerism from whole cloth. I was kind of expecting that conspiracy to be revealed, and I was a little annoyed at first that the author chose to leave it a mystery. As far as an explanation goes, I think I'll settle for the contention mentioned in the book that he is an archetypal entity, but not one who came from another star one created by the collective consciousness of everyone who utilizes the empathy boxes. But who did invent and distribute the things? And why? It looks like that one will remain a mystery. And that's okay. Deadpan Ambassador, out. For now. I have the movie in my Netflix queue, and I plan on watching it this coming Sunday or Monday, most likely. Talk to you then. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the ten house gate. All those moments will be lost in time like tears in rain. Time to die. Uh, Jack, I just had a thought. If this is the last Palooza, does it make it the parting Palooza? Just wondering. All right, I am leaving an origami unicorn at your doorstep because we're at the end. 
that origami unicorn may or may not mean something, depending on which version you're listening to. Thank you, everyone, for contributing and for listening. And as I said, it's not too late, but I think the next episode is going to be the last one. And we've already got a good long conversation in there. I guess we can kind of tack you guys on, or you can have late content appear in a follow-up episode. But the plan is really to only do one more Blade Runner Palooza, and then kind of cruise into Deadpan's home stretch, the final, the final stretch of Deadpan. However, don't worry, those of you who are who are worried about the end of Deadpan coming, because this is actually a special, different model that never dies and lives forever. All right, I think it's been a while since uh, we've done this song around Deadpan. It's an old Matt Mango tune that I was a, a big part of called "You Need." Two words, like Blade Runner is two words. You need. All right, I'm releasing the dove. Good night, brother Daryl, and my other brother Daryl. Good spot, right?
Is well. 